Republican battle Congressman Matt Gates. Matt Gates was one of the very few members in the entire Congress who bothered to stand up against permanent Washington on behalf of his constituents. Matt Gates right now, he's a problem for the Democratic Party, and he could cause a lot of hiccups in passing of laws. So we're going to keep running those stories to keep hurting him. If you stand for the flag and kneel in prayer, if you want to build America up and not burn her to the ground, then welcome, my fellow patriots. You are in the right place. This is the movement for you. You ever watch this guy on television? It's like a machine. Matt Gates. I'm a canceled man in some corners of the internet. Many days I'm a marked man in Congress, a wanted man by the deep state. They aren't really coming for me. They're coming for you. I'm just in the way. A colleague of mine said this in a committee hearing a few weeks ago, uh, Mr. Gates. He said, when is the FBI going to quit interfering with elections? 2016, they spied on President Trump's campaign. 2018, it was the Mueller investigation. 2020, they suppressed information about the Hunter Biden story. 2022, they raided the president's home 91 days before an election. Maybe it'd be nice if the FBI and the Justice Department just stayed out of it and let we the people decide who we think should represent us, who we think should lead us. That's supposed to be how America works. So this is the focus on the Judiciary Committee, the political nature at the Justice Department, and the linkage now to what was happening with the Hunter Biden story, again, just 15 days before we have a presidential election. We are live here on the Firebrand Podcast, broadcasting from the Longworth House office building in Washington, D.C., in the Capitol Complex, and that was Jim Jordan talking about the Hunted becoming the hunters. That's right, we're going to go after a politicized Department of Justice and FBI, and the best evidence that they are infected by politics is how they treated the Hunter Biden matter. This will not be an investigation merely of Hunter Biden. It will be an investigation of Joe Biden, how Joe Biden was financially enriched, how Joe Biden used his role as an international power player to sell out America's interests for foreign interests, and how Joe Biden himself was actively involved in the cover-up of these matters through his government and through some of the worst actors at the FBI and the DOJ. That's a preview of coming attractions. I'm sure we'll have Jim Jordan on soon to discuss it. We've got big news, though. We've got one of the leading voices in uh, the FCC talking about the need to ban TikTok, the threat to our country from the Chinese Communist Party manifested through an app that is widely used in almost every American home that has the capability to get facial recognition, to get audio voice recognition, and to compromise our youth. Now, joining us, I can't imagine a better person than New York's Gavin Wax. Gavin Wax is the president of the New York Young Republican Club. He is also in the technology field working at Getter, where we are simulcast streaming right now. Gavin, thanks so much for joining Firebrand. I want to get to TikTok. I want to get to the Chinese Communist Party, how you see the big tech environment in the United States now. But first, I have to ask you about the Empire State. All over the country, you saw Republicans underperform, but yet in Florida and in New York, Republicans did better. And I want to get a sense from you, was it the candidates? Was it the issue matrix? Wasn't the political environment somehow different? What was so different about New York this last election cycle that resulted in your great state sending us a whole lot more Republicans to the Congress? 
Well, thank you for having me on, Congressman. It's great to be here. And as far as New York is concerned, the Empire State, I think uh, we can attribute a ton of our success politically and electorally here uh, simply to the environment. Uh, the environment for a Republican renaissance and resurgence in this state uh, has never been better in decades, generations even. Uh, when you look at issues like crime, quality of life, the list goes on. Uh, things have really hit rock bottom here, and I think it's presented a very fertile ground uh, for a resurgent GOP to take advantage of that to win a series of congressional, state senate, assembly races, and of course come within five points statewide of the gubernatorial race. So hopefully we can build off of this coalition, these trends, these realignment, these realigning factors here in New York, and turn that into a potentially governing majority in years to come. It wasn't too long ago we had control of the state Senate as recently as 2018. Uh, so we can certainly bring some two-party uh, you know, uh, sensibilities, if you want to use, if we can use that word back uh, to the Empire State, because I think many New Yorkers of all stripes, moderates, liberals, lifelong Dems even, are getting really sick of the monopoly Democrat rule uh, up in Albany, and they're looking for uh, some two-party uh, consensus building on a range of issues, as mentioned earlier, from crime to cost of living, et cetera. Uh, when you look at some of these new Republicans that will be joining us in the next Congress, uh, people like Nick Langworthy, George Santos, uh, Mr. Lawler, it, is crime going to really be the take home for them? Is, is the eroding safety and security situation in New York what really drove a realignment in politics? Because we, we saw really entire groups that had previously been reliable voting blocks for Democrats they were up for grabs, and Republicans got a lot of those votes. So is it is it crime first, or you know, how are some of these uh, economic issues also hitting these New York districts where financial services issues, the flow of capital, inflation, I mean, these are very much kitchen table issues still. Absolutely. I mean, look, all politics is local, as the old uh, saying goes, and there were certainly a litany of issues on the table here in New York that created new coalitions and certainly a realigned uh, many voting groups. And yes, there was many ethnic realignments going on in New York from Asian American voters to Hispanic Americans to Jewish Americans, all of these different blocks of uh, votes that were historically uh, within the Democrat camp were shifting over to Republicans. Uh, and the reasons varied. And I do think uh, you know, while many of these newly elected members of Congress that you cited are going uh, to D.C. and going to represent their uh, constituents on a variety of different issues that go well beyond crime, I do think uh, what made New York unique and different uh, in terms of its political environment from many other states where we did not see uh, a red wave, a red tsunami, or even red at all, uh, despite the fact that many of these states have been historically more competitive. You're looking at Pennsylvania, Michigan, et cetera, places that you know were won statewide by Trump as recently as 2016. New York outperformed them in terms of our competitiveness and in terms of the success of our Republican candidates, uh, again, because the, the, the on-the-ground situation, which is unique to New York in many ways, uh, is uh, very bad. I think, you know, we have seen since the COVID crisis that uh, the state of the city and state of the state uh, have uh, continued to decline. The the, uh, the the decline that we were witnessing prior to COVID was only exacerbated. Uh, and this goes into economic issues, as you mentioned. We're having tons of financial sector jobs going down to your home state uh, in Florida, in Miami in particular. Uh, so we're losing jobs. We're losing people. 
criminals are running free, uh, and the situation only continues to get worse. And I think that's why we almost saw uh, a surprise win for Lee Zeldin uh, back on Tuesday, November 8th. And hopefully uh, we'll continue to see wins uh, going into next cycle, 2024, here in New York. And I do think uh, with the the delegation we are sending to D.C., they're going to do their state proud, and we're going to have a lot of great uh, champions of the Empire State down in Washington to serve with you. We love it when patriotic New Yorkers choose to make Florida their forever home. But I've got to tell you, America is a better place when the Big Apple is a dynamic, iconic city. And uh, I've traveled there a number of times, had the great privilege to speak to the members of your club. And it astonishes to me to see how quickly New York could change. You know, I mean, you and I had to go grab, I don't even know if the statute of limitations has passed on this, but you and I had to go grab dinner somewhere during the pandemic, and it, it felt like we were doing a drug deal. We had to go down into a basement and bring only cash and look nobody in the eye, and all we wanted was some good ravioli. And uh, then I did see a rebound. After things started to open up, there was a, a new energy there, but that criminal activity, the feeling that you're not safe on the subway, walking down the street, standing at your bodega, it's really overwhelming. And, and as much as I appreciate the migration of great people and great capital to the Sunshine State, I want the Empire State to be a leading icon of America. I just think it's a great thing when New York is a great city and there's still a lot of great folks who live there. Gavin, you're the president of the New York Young Republican Club. And I want to get into some of the areas where we underperformed. We overperformed with New Yorkers, but we underperformed with Gen Z. And, and I wanted to get your perspective on why Republicans are doing so bad with people under 30. Well, look, I think we're in an uphill fight. All the institutions are working against us, particularly institutions that shape and mold young minds. You know, you're talking about higher education. You're talking about pop culture. You're talking even about corporate America, where many young professionals get their first start uh, in their careers. Uh, all these institutions are working against conservatism and the Republican Party, uh, and it just makes uh, the situation uh, even worse for us. And we've always had a disparity in terms of the age bracket, uh, you know, division between the parties. You know, typically the older you get, the more Republican and conservative you are, and the younger you are, the more liberal and democratic, but it's never been uh, a worse situation than we're facing right now. Uh, and I think, you know, this is an issue that's going to continue until Republicans can present a holistic vision uh, to the next generation, to the younger generations about the future and how their prosperity, their well-being are being robbed from them by globalism, by uh, a lot of the neoliberal institutions that dominate uh, the Western world and how their quality of life, their standard of living, uh, the wealth and prosperity that they are going to enjoy is going to be less than that of their parents for the first time uh, in modern American history, for sure. Uh, so unless we can begin to properly convey and articulate uh, those problems and, and also obviously offer a whole range of solutions to them, you know, putting forward ideas uh, and policy proposals that will enable young people to start businesses, to own their own homes, to start families, all the things that, say, the boomers took for granted, but which is now being denied mainly for economic reasons to Gen Z and millennials. And unless we is can, it setting you know, in, Is there a malaise setting in from that, Gavin? Because what I worry about is you have a Gen Z that is more willing to live with their parents well into their years of majority. And, you know, when I was a young person, I, I couldn't wait to go and 
find the world on my own, be my own man, have, have my job, have my own source of income. And increasingly, we do see in Gen Z, a, you know, maybe a, an acceptance that life's just going to be worse and going to be different. I mean, we see the suicide rates. We see the drug addiction rates. How do you go from malaise to, like, patriotic activity on behalf of a country that Gen Z is going to inherit? Well, this is certainly beyond political. It's spiritual. It's cultural. I mean, the left has certainly imported uh, European-style uh, living at home with your parents to your mid-30s to the United States. They always wanted to be like Europe, and we've sure gotten it that way. But you also bring up, you know, how this, you know, is impacted by, you know, the use of uh, different antidepressants and, and, and our highly medicated, uh, you know, society. And, and it's just, it is certainly inducing a societal malaise, particularly on young people who are the most disadvantaged, uh, who have issues rising the corporate ladder because there's a lot of boomers who refuse to retire and are clinging on to their institutions. I mean, look no further than, you know, the leadership of uh, the, the, the Democrat Party, the Republican Party. You know, it's dominated by the old, certainly not the young firebrands such as Matt Gates. Uh, and I think this just plays society wide. And I do think this malaise is setting in. And I think there's a sense of, you know, conformity that's going with it. But I do think deep down people realize uh, that they want more and they're looking for more. And until the Republicans can give alternatives, uh, we're going to continue to lose. I mean, give it, give credit to the Democrats where credit is due. They're cynical, but they'll come out prior to the election and say, we're going to pay off, you know, your student debt. I mean, it was a, it was an interesting, crazy proposal, but it certainly got people to the polls and it got it them to vote votes. for them. And of course, they pulled it right after. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it successfully bought some votes that they went and put that shiny lure out regarding student debt, but the reality is that is just a burden shift to a lot of working people in our country. And frankly, we got too many people going to college. I know that's not always a popular view, but we have indebted an entire generation of people with philosophy degrees and psychology degrees, and I'm probably part of the problem, political science degrees, the, the degree that, that I have. Um, part of that malaise is facilitated by an addiction to big tech. And I really wanted you on the program today to talk about the threat of TikTok. Big news, we're seeing voices out of the FCC talking about the danger of TikTok, its utilization by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, I know you work in the technology field. What's your assessment of the role that TikTok is currently playing in American life and American politics? TikTok is a behemoth. It is the biggest name in social media. Facebook is, uh, you know, struggling and declining. Twitter obviously has all its issues. Instagram is a close second, uh, mostly because they are replicating with uh, their version of Instagram Reels. But TikTok is the new big dog on campus, and it just so happens to be a company completely beholden uh, to the Communist Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party out of Beijing. Uh, and this obviously poses a major, major national security risk. I mean, TikTok is unique in how addictive it is and how personalized it is, how it caters to you based on, you know, all the data that it collects from your interests to what you're searching, to how you're liking, to how long you're watching. I mean, the data that they are gathering from American citizens is massive. And in the wrong hands, like in the hands of the CCP, it could be used for extremely effective intelligence gathering uh, and other types of intelligence operations. Uh, I mean, they can see what's pasted, uh, what's saved in your clipboard. They can gather your biometric data. They could gather your location data, your facial recognition. I mean, all this data is now in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party uh, out of Beijing, and they can potentially have that data 
data on elected officials, their staff, military personnel, you name it. Now, look, we have a lot of issues in big tech and many of it are from companies that are incorporated and founded and based in the United States. So it's certainly uh, not an issue that stops at our national borders, uh, but we can certainly step up to the plate here and, and reach a consensus uh, where I think there may be some consensus to be formed across parties that TikTok is an issue uh, from a national security standpoint. I also agree it's an issue from a, from a deeper cultural and psychological standpoint. I definitely think it's perpetuating a lot of the societal rot uh, that we're seeing among younger generations in the country as a whole. It's addictive, uh, probably the most addictive of the social media platforms. And I say that with experience. It's I've used it. It's certainly very addictive. Oh, you're a rec are are you still on TikTok, Gavin Wax? Are you a current TikToker? Uh, I don't post TikToks. I think I have an account still, but uh, I'm trying to use uh, Getter's Visions, which is a competitor, and of course Instagram Reels. But I could I could admit from you know my past use that uh, you know I've taken a few hits of TikTok. There you day. go, a recovering TikToker. You know the yeah. it's maybe easy for people to understand. Okay, if you work at a national research laboratory or a university or in the United States Congress, that having TikTok could be a threat, but if you're just a regular family, a fireman and a teacher in Branson, Missouri, and gosh, you know, the, the TikTok machine has your kids, you know, doing some harmless dances and looking at what their friends are up to. Like, why should it worry just regular Americans, you think? Well, I think twofold. I think one, the amount of data that they're uh, building up in mass, uh, it's going to give them uh, the information necessary to manipulate society. I mean, we're we're in a uh, a new type of warfare. It's a it's certainly a, you know there's no guns or artillery being fired, uh, but people are uh, in the midst of psychological warfare and demoralization campaigns and how uh, you know people are socially engineered in mass. We saw it with COVID, uh, and and the Chinese are becoming experts at it. They're experts at it on their own population, and the data that they're getting from TikTok will enable them uh, to become masters of social engineering. The American people if we don't stop them. So we should not, uh, you know, cede ground in any possible way uh, to them for them to, you know, advance uh, their geopolitical interests against our own. Um, and, you know, they're, they're doing this, you know, beyond just big tech. I mean, they're buying property up across the entire country. You know, they're, they're taking over entire nations telecom uh, through uh, their 5G networks and Huawei. So, I mean, they are playing a uh, a multifaceted game here. You're, they're playing on a multi-front war uh, in terms of their global dominance from the from the Silk Road to their investments in Africa, et cetera. So TikTok is just one of those fronts and we certainly shouldn't cede ground. So that's the geopolitical front. But again, uh, you know, for the average American, I think this is this goes beyond politics and this is what goes back to winning over younger voters and younger people. It's that we are in the midst of a spiritual and cultural war and I think social media uh, is perpetuating the worst, uh, you know, facets of leftism and this nihilism and all these other social and societal ills that are really destroying the core fabric of our society. Uh, and this is not an electoral issue, but this is something deeper. And I think, you know, social media at large, it's it's a new development, obviously, in the human story, uh, you know, only what, 20 years old, if that. Uh, but it certainly led to a radical change in how people interact with each other, how people engage with society, how people feel about themselves and see others. Uh, and it's leading to a litany of, you know, social and psychological ills that we're not fully uh, able to grasp just yet because the science is still out. But TikTok is part of that. And if we have an opportunity to knock it off the market, getting a win against China and maybe also a win in the battles I just mentioned that are non-political, then I say, why not do it? You're so right about how fast this has developed. 
I mean, I remember being in high school and initially the only way you could communicate with someone digitally is you had to sit there and pound out a text message on a Nokia phone. And, you know, if you wanted the C, you had to hit A, B, C on the, you know, on number two, and that would give you one letter. And then you'd go on and, I mean, it would take several minutes to construct a message of just a few words. And then the transformational revolution was when AOL Instant Messenger would allow you to open up multiple screens and talk to like three or four people at one time with a keyboard. And it was just captivating. You could have a few conversations going at once. You could have friends all over the country and be sharing ideas or thoughts with them. And to think about, you know, how exciting that was and groundbreaking it was, but how it was really nothing compared to turning every American into a content producer, which is really what these social media platforms do. And there can be a lot of good in that, and I want to talk about that later in our discussion. But when you've got the Chinese Communist Party in charge of it, you need to know what the goal is. Chinese Communist Party did not set up TikTok to make money. They want to control what you see and how you think so that they can control how you behave. And throughout the history of great power competition, the idea was you want to influence the leaders, the civil society elite, the military elite. But what China has done has been to convert technological expertise into totalitarian control. Like we were all promised that the social media revolution would cause great threats to major power and it would embody the body politic to have exciting ideas and to organize together and to push back against totalitarianism. But what we've seen from the Chinese Communist Party is that they have used technology to become more effective in totalitarian control. And while in China, that means a social credit score and drones flying around telling you when you're allowed to go outside, here in America, it's more subtle, but it's just as pervasive to the core. And I think TikTok is, is central to that. We talked earlier in the discussion about how we change our thinking over time in politics. Anybody who says that their political ideology doesn't evolve and doesn't deepen and doesn't uh, have additional contours as they, as they gain more experience on the planet Earth is not being honest. And what I can tell you is, as a younger man, I was far more libertarian. I just thought, well, you know what? The government doesn't do very much right. And so if the government does less and people do more, that's kind of a good thing. And that's the construct to build a philosophy off of. But as I got into Congress, I became perhaps a little less libertarian and a little more populist because I started to see that if government doesn't do anything for people and we just debate should government be smaller or larger, I've seen throughout my life that government has grown bigger, borrowed deeper against the future of our fellow Americans, and yet the right doesn't seem to try to get the government to do anything proactively, positively for our people to improve quality of life. And one of the things we ought to do is ban TikTok and look more aggressively at some of these other social media platforms. You know, Gavin, you uh, have been a commentator on the impact of this meta concept and the revolution that Twitter is going through right now. How would you assess the social media environment broadly in the United States domestically. And then I want to get to some of the exciting new things that Getter's doing as well. Well, domestically, it certainly uh, hasn't been great. Obviously, we've seen uh, now over the last few years that big tech is largely an extension 
uh, of the intelligence apparatus in this country, and that intelligence apparatus has been turned against uh, the American people, in particular conservatives and uh, anyone who goes against the establishment. Uh, it's been turned against them frequently. Uh, so big tech uh, domestically is not much better than big tech from China. Uh, you know, we may have uh, an easier time going after uh, TikTok because of its foreign entanglements and its ties to the CCP, but we shouldn't. We should certainly not rest on our laurels as it comes to the threats emerging out of Silicon Valley and the boardrooms of Meta and, and formerly Twitter, I suppose, and all the rest. I mean, because there is a lot of insidious elements that have cr crept into big tech, along with all the other other institutions that we've talked about earlier. It's this sort of Fabian-style left-wing takeover of the corporate boardrooms and they found out that big tech uh, are the arbiters of the modern town square and uh, how all information and media uh, is uh, you know disseminated across society and having that you know power lever under your control under your you know under your grasp is a massive massive uh, you know necessary tool for the sort of totalitarian societies that the elites in the West want to imitate from China. I mean, we talked about, you talked about the high-tech totalitarianism we see in China. That's exactly what, you know, the, you know, Western elites at Davos and, and, uh, you know, the, the Great Reset, that's all they're trying to build here. Maybe they're trying to do it more subtly, as you mentioned, but they're certainly looking uh, to Beijing for inspiration. And that's why uh, when given an opportunity to stop it through TikTok or even through domestic regulations on big tech, we should certainly do that. And I fully agree with you. I originally was a libertarian and I definitely have now embraced a sort of populism, nationalism, national conservative type of uh, political ideology. And I think if you have two different political parties, one which is willing to use its power uh, to effectuate its own ends and the other that it's only willing uh, to step back and do nothing. It's the it's the party and the political ideology that's willing to use power uh, to effectuate its own ends that is, that's going to win. That's bringing a gun to a knife fight and we're going to continue to lose until we know and realize that we must wield power uh, you know, when we have the opportunity because they will use it against us in a heartbeat. And sometimes we have to put down uh, some of these sort of ideological roadblockers and understand that when it comes to governing, uh, we need to be pragmatic, we need to be dynamic, and we need to understand uh, that action is necessary and not just falling back on theorems and maxims and talking points. But when we're in office, you know, we should use the power of that office to advance our agenda, our conservative America first agenda. And I don't think there's anything anti-American about that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's how society has always progressed. That's how, that's the history of human interaction and human power dynamics. So uh, it's only recently that Republicans found uh, an excuse for some of their fecklessness and some of their weakness. Uh, but I think that the, there's a paradigm shift going on in the way that many on the right think about power, think about government. And I think they realize that in order to preserve uh, our way of life, our traditional American society, our freedoms, our liberties, we're going to have to you know, roll up our sleeves a bit and, and wage some asymmetrical warfare that the left has been doing uh, against us for decades. Yeah, it would be symmetrical with the way a lot of us have been treated. But you're right. As a conservative, at your core, you have to want to conserve something, to keep something, to hold as precious American citizenship, American sovereignty, American culture, American language. And you've seen far too many conservatives believe that, well, we're doing our job just so long as we deal those things away more slowly. And, and the reality is we have to conserve, we have to protect, and then there are hills we've got to climb. And there's power that we have to be willing to take when it is given to us by the voters in, in elections. 
you know, part of the debate that we will have in the Republican Congress is about how to break up big tech. There are some who say, well, you can eliminate some of the immunities that they enjoy and there'll be a judicial process that then they'll have to go through. That might bring a few of the bad actors down. There's some who would simply say, reshape these companies by force of law. Go in and reshape the companies, force Instagram to be sold from Facebook, force Google to separate search and email. And that's really the Elizabeth Warren perspective. And so I might be more in line with the Elizabeth Warren perspective to break up big tech rather than maybe the Republican Kevin McCarthy perspective of, eliminating some of the shields that big tech has been allowed to build in the law. That'll be one of the very important debates coming up. But Gavin, you made a critical point about the relationship between big tech and the intelligence apparatus, and it bears drawing a fine point on it and repeating it. You said big tech is part of the intelligence apparatus, and people need to understand that that has a human feature too. There is a revolving door between the Department of Justice, FBI, CIA, NSA, and a lot of these big tech companies. They go cash out working for big tech. And you know what? One reason why you haven't seen the Department of Justice actually enforce antitrust laws against big tech is because they, they ultimately want to sell the antidote. These guys at DOJ that end up going to work at big tech, well, they want to be able to create the risk and the fear of antitrust action, but they don't really want to do it because then they want to go from being the prosecutor to being the defense counsel or the advisor or the board member or the security official or whatever at these big tech companies. And so I don't think people really get how corrupt that is where DOJ will say, okay, we'll go initiate an action, but that's not sincerely to achieve the outcome. It's just to create a marketplace for the talents of the people at DOJ when they want to go work at big tech. And they are walking, springing leaks. And I think one of the areas where that manifested in the most corrupt activity was around the Hunter Biden laptop. When our good friend Vish Burrow, who's come on this program and talked about what it was like to break that case and to be a part of the chain of custody of that laptop to get that information before the American people. And there you had big tech and our intelligence apparatus working hand in hand to try to deprive the American people of that information. This is a critical point for Republicans to investigate. And, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm here in Washington in my congressional office. You're out there interacting with our activists and our fellow Americans. Do people really think that we're going to do it? Because when I go places, I hear folks say, yeah, yeah, Matt, you know, we've heard before how you, everybody, the, you know, Trey Gowdy was going to get Hillary Clinton in Benghazi, and then that didn't happen. And then we were going to hold people accountable for the Russia hugs, but because Jeff Sessions was such a weakling, that didn't happen. And, and I sense there might be some concern that this is all talk and bluster, but that the actual results of these investigations won't result in true criminal process. Do you sense that that's a concern? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there is a uh, palpable sense of apathy among uh, the base, and I think that tied into our, uh, you know, less than ideal election results uh, for the midterms. I think there's a lot of people that realize uh, that many, particularly in our own party, particularly Republicans, uh, will campaign on one thing, and the second they get to D.C., it's business as usual, and they fall in uh, into line with the dictates of the swamp. And I think, uh, you know, people are sick and tired of, you know, sort of the, you know, the uh, the the trim 
filmed videos from the House floor where they're speaking to no one and they're pounding their fists, or even in committee hearings where they talk a big game like former Congressman Gowdy and then there's little to no results. I think people have become quite accustomed to that. Uh, and I think it's it's set, set in uh, this sort of apathy uh, for any real change uh, to actually happen. And I think uh, this is one of the biggest problems facing the Republican Party electorally. Uh, because we play a lot of theatrics and we we play footsies and we rarely do anything. And I think that's why so many people loved President Donald Trump, because he actually shook things up. He got things done and he moved the needle forward. The Overton window certainly shifted. He certainly could have done, done a lot more with a cooperative party uh, and D.C. bureaucracy. But I think that's what people are looking for. And I think uh, the Republican establishment, the Republican leadership does not give uh, many people, certainly in the grassroots, certainly myself, certainly people that I talk to, a lot of confidence uh, that they're willing to do much. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, the McCarthy style, you know, removing some of these protections and these shields uh, from from tech, which I think would be, you know, a good logical first step. But I, I even doubt he would be willing to do that, uh, if anything. I mean, you know, the Elizabeth Warren approach you mentioned, uh, while drastic, is even further away. I think nothing's on the table uh, until we really begin to see uh, some sizable paradigm shifts within the party uh, structure of both parties, because the uni party controls everything, uh, and they're going to move at a snail's pace, and they're only going to give uh, crumbs when people demand cake. Uh, and I think that's an issue uh, at large with D.C. You, you discuss the revolving door, the rent-seeking that goes on, how it's you know totally uh, corrupted our institutions, and it's created this sort of, uh, you know, capital of an empire uh, where nothing gets done unless you're willing to spend enough money to grease the wheels. And obviously, uh, the American people don't have that largesse to do that. Uh, but certainly foreign actors do, certainly corporate interests do. Uh, the American people only have their votes and their votes are seemingly uh, beginning to matter less and less. Uh, because even though they'll elect Republicans time again, uh, those Republicans or Democrats even will do nothing. So uh, it's a it's a systemic issue we're facing. And I think it's creating uh, a political environment uh, that is full of uh, full of apathy. And it's not good uh, for the future of our republic. We need action. Ban TikTok, break up big tech, create the space for startups and new technology companies to be able to service the needs of the American people. And, and that's where I want to get together because when we initially proposed some of these ideas, folks said, you know what, if people don't like Facebook, if people don't like TikTok, let them sign off. Let them deactivate their account. Go start your own social network, conservatives and pro-America patriots, if you don't like our woke, leftist, foreign-infected options that we have available for you right now. And really the first foray into that was Parler. Conservatives set up a social media platform. It had millions of users, but they weren't smart enough to be vertically integrated. They got functionally canceled. They lost all their momentum when Amazon Web Services pulled them. Getter built in, I think, more resiliency on the front end to cancellation. When Getter started, it was all a buzz. Millions of people joined. And uh, now it's a great place for our office to get message messages to constituents. There's programming schedules you could check out on Getter so that you can get the content you want from some of the voices that you trust. Uh, so maybe give folks who might be watching this on one of the other social platforms or streaming services a sense of what the experience is like on Getter, how that might differ from what they're seeing on other platforms. Look, I think it's better on Getter, no pun intended, but you know,
you know, the old tech space has certainly come a long, long way uh, from the early days that you referenced where people said, well, go make your own social media platform. We have obviously uh, many of the failures that were associated with Parler, uh, a lot of the censorship that happened uh, with sites like Gab. And I think now the alt tech space with Rumble and Getter and even Truth is really beginning to come into its own. They're having uh, they're beginning to see a critical mass of users and community formation. Uh, the features of the tech are beginning to either uh, be on par or even surpass in some instances that of big tech. I mean, you look at Getter. Getter had an edit button uh, before Twitter did. Getter had, uh, when, when Twitter was deprecating live streams and periscopes, Getter was bringing on live streams. Uh, so there was certainly even a tech and features uh, disparity growing between all tech and Twitter. And I think that forced uh, Twitter prior to Elon Musk taking over. It forced Twitter uh, to start integrating new features like Twitter Blue and undoing tweets and the edit button uh, and all these other things that started to create uh, the first sense of competition uh, in this space. And even if some of these all tech companies uh, don't win, quote unquote, uh, ultimately in this battle of companies, they are certainly uh, creating an environment uh, and incentives uh, for these companies to innovate, continue to innovate, and continue to have policies uh, that are designed uh, to encourage a, a larger user base. And I think we're seeing massive upticks on Twitter's uh, daily active users and activity and engagement. I know Elon is bragging about that constantly, and that's due j just sort of to the 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 the, the notion that it's a little more free, that it's a little, uh, there's a little less censorship. It doesn't even have actually be a reality, but the mere notion that Twitter is going to censor less and ban less has led to a resurgence of activity on that platform without even seeing any substantive changes from the policy side yet uh, from Elon. So I think it's showing uh, the market uh, that there is a massive demand there uh, for free speech, for alternative platforms. And if you build it, they will come. And maybe there will be some short-term downsides uh, with advertisers and other things that, that I know Elon and the new Twitter board uh, is experiencing with many you know, of these left woke uh, companies trying to pull their advertising dollars. But you know, he's looking to monetize other, uh, other facets of the platform to move away from an advertising model. You know, Maybe the rollout of the blue check uh, $8 verification system wasn't ideal, but it shows a willingness to test the waters and to move away from an environment where corporate woke entities can determine uh, company policies because of their advertising spends. And I think, you know, Getter and others are showing that you can build really reliable, self-sustaining platforms with growing communities uh, without having to go woke. Uh, and I think the more of this that happens, we'll begin to set precedent. We'll see more people enter in uh, to the alt space marketplace and to the alt space, you know, sector. Uh, and the more competition, the better. And the more tech and the more features, the more innovation, the better. Because I think we definitely had a period of malaise, to reuse a word from our earlier discussion, uh, in the tech space for many years. And I think it culminated with the banning of Donald J. Trump, President Donald J. Trump from Twitter. Uh, and I think we're, we're kind of emerging from that dark age now. And we're seeing a lot of possibilities, both reforming big tech from within from inside, which I believe Elon is attempting to do. And of course, building uh, separate parallel platforms like Getter, like Rumble, like Truth, uh, which are going to you know build their own spaces, but also force change in big tech through the process of market competition. So it's an interesting time. Uh, we're entering certainly a wild west, and I think it's only positive from here. And any regulatory changes that come out of DC, come out of Washington, uh, we talked about those protective shields, we talked about maybe breaking up some entities, Anything that comes out of Washington will only help 
uh, this process and will uh, weaken uh, what I believe is the monopolistic control of big tech on several of their social media verticals, whether it's, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. It is the Wild West. It is a new frontier and I am here for it. Gavin Wax is the Global Marketing Director for Getter. He's the president of the New York Young Republican Club. Gavin, how can folks follow your postings and commentary? Well, thank you again for having me on, Congressman. You can follow me at Gavin Wax. That's Twitter, Getter, Instagram, Facebook, everything. Uh, you can check out my website, uh, GavinWax.com. You can check out the New York Young Republican Club, which is the oldest and largest Republican club in the country, uh, www.nyyrc.com, nyyrc. Uh, at NYYRC on social. We have our upcoming gala December 10th. It's going to be a blast. You were obviously a past speaker uh, when we got banned from the Garden State. So we're looking to make uh, as big of a splash as that prior gala. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's pretty much where you can find me. Oh, and my article. I think are we're still under Hall criminal attacks. investigation in New Jersey. I'm not sure, but the governor of New Jersey said that because we held a, a socially distanced dinner without masks that you know we were like putting people's lives in danger phil murphy has put more people's lives in danger than you and i have for holding a upscale political event who would have thought gavin thanks so much for joining us on firebrand thanks for your great work i'm excited for the new frontiers we're going to conquer together my friend thank you sir have a good right. one. thanks He's the best. Follow Gavin and uh, make sure you're following us on Getter because it's a great place for us to be able to stream this content. If you weren't paying attention these last few days, you might have missed that we almost stumbled our way into a nuclear war with Russia over an accident that wasn't actually Russian. Put up the uh, headline that we get from Fox News. Here was a Fox News headline, an actual headline. For those of you who are listening to the pod, it says, Russian missiles cross into NATO, NATO member Poland, kill two, senior U.S. intelligence official. So this isn't true. Those weren't Russian missiles. They obviously were Ukrainian uh, anti-assault uh, measures. And, and when you've got the, the shield, essentially, the defensive mechanism to stop missiles from landing into your territory, you shoot stuff at those missiles. And so it was what Ukraine had deployed in their own defense, admittedly, but what Ukraine had deployed that landed in Russia. But how irresponsible for news organizations, for intelligence officials to just start by saying, we have to invoke NATO protocols that require us to all go and defend Poland to the death when the reality was there was no Russian attack on Poland. Take a listen to some of the worst takes in this fog of war. I have no doubt that this is not our missile, not our strike. There is no sense for me to trust them. I went through war with them and with you. I don't to put an end to it, but I have my opinion. I believe this is a Russian missile based on our military reports. When it comes to our security commitments uh, and Article 5, we've been crystal clear that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Wars are not fought by armies. They're fought by nations. This war is fought by the Ukrainian people and is fought by the Russian people. And this is a war that Russia's leadership has chosen to put Russia into. We're still gathering information, but we have seen nothing that contradicts President Duda's 
preliminary assessment that this explosion was most likely the result of a Ukrainian air defense missile that unfortunately landed in Poland. And whatever the final conclusions may be, the world knows that Russia bears ultimate responsibility for this incident. That was the voice of your Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Probably one of the worst people to wear the uniform in a while. He's done a lot of harm. These aren't guys who are going to win you any wars, but they might stumble you into some as a consequence of their ineptitude. And before Lloyd Austin, it was the voice of Mark Milley who said, this war is fought by the Russian people. And I've just got to ask, like, how stupid does one have to be to try to provoke the Russian people over Ukraine having some of their materiel accidentally land in Poland. Seems like a weird time to try to escalate and accelerate the fight with the Russian people. This war was Putin's choice. It was a bad choice. It's a war I hope Putin loses. But it's certainly not the Russian people that Americans have a beef with. The Russian people are doing everything they can to run out of the country, escape, avoid being drafted into this war. But with military leaders like Milley and Austin, the American people should have little confidence that we are being led by the A-team. We undeniably are not. There's going to be a lot of questioning and investigation of their role in the botched Afghanistan withdrawal, their role in not being able to assess the will to fight, frankly, from Afghanistan to Ukraine, the materiel and cash that we have sent endlessly into the most corrupt country in Europe, Ukraine, the third most corrupt country in the world, according to a Goldman Sachs analysis. We can do better than this. We could do better than them. And the next time there's a potential accident, maybe before we go and leap to blaming the Russian people and starting a nuclear war with Russia that would be devastating to the entire world, we ought to check the facts, do investigation, thorough review. That's what the American people deserve. And it's too often not what they get from a Pentagon that is so reckless, they blame the Russians when it wasn't the Russians who even launched this materiel, and then they don't get it right when they're drone-striking families in Afghanistan. It really is a parade of horribles, and it's one that we must correct in the coming Congress with aggressive and robust oversight, and I will be right there on the House Armed Services Committee getting the job done. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you again to my good friend Gavin Wax for his leadership at the New York Young Republican Club and his work in the technology sector. We appreciate you joining us. Have those notifications turned on. You never know when we're going to go live. And make sure you're subscribed so that you can always catch up on the news from Firebrand. Roll the credits. <laughs>